Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devendra Hardwar. I'm Deputy Editor Sherlyn Lowe. This week, there's a lot of video game stuff happening. We're going to be talking about the death of E3. It seems like it's gone, finally. And also, we're a little late to this, but uh, we're going to recap the Game Awards with our reporter, Jess Condit. Uh, there are a lot of cool games. And uh, you know what? We also forgot to talk about the Grand Theft Auto 6 trailer. So we can just wrap all this game stuff together. It'll be a fun chat. As always, folks, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes. Drop us an email at podcastandgadget.com if you want to send us any feedback or ask any questions. Okay, so it seems like E3 is finally dead. Jessica Condit, our senior reporter, is here to tell us what's going on. Hey, Jess. Hey, happy to be here. Happy to be here. I mean, sad time. (laughs) I guess, is this our third Mm -hmm. eulogy for E3, I think? Like every time they've like canceled it. Yeah, right. It's been canceled a few times, but this is like officially it's, you know, don't look out for it next year. Don't look out for it the year after that. It's not coming back. The ESA has said, yeah, E3 is kind of done. It was very done. (laughs) Officially The statement basically was just like, good game. Like, good game. Yeah. RIP. We're out. We're out. Goodbye. Um, This is so, yeah, we've had a couple episodes about this years ago, but it's worth just reiterating. Man, E3 was such a... Such an important event for the video game industry. Um, I had a lot of feelings about it as a kid, like just hearing about it, wanting to be talking about video games or thinking about technology. E3 was a big thing. It was a sister event to CES. People may forget this. So E3 used to be like a little thing that was happening in Las Vegas. Uh, In the 90s, it was taking place in Atlanta, actually. I wish it was back here because that's where I am. And then it moved to LA, you know, after that. And it's been there for a while. A mainstay trade show for games. Um, Jess, what are your feelings about E3 at this point? They are complicated. Um, Uh Yeah, I mean, E3 was, I think, at its peak at a time before YouTube was the main way that we got our video game news, right? E3 was the place where if you wanted to see new trailers or whatever, that's kind of that's where they came from. That's where they lived. And if you weren't there, you may miss them. Or if you weren't paying attention to the right the right places or or the right news, we didn't even have. I just want to say, like, we did not really have media about games. Like, I remember as a kid, there was maybe Game Pro TV, which came on like Saturday mornings at some point. Um, but really, E three was for mainstream media to be like, "Hey, there's a new thing happening," and you see mainstream reporters talk about it, and then not doing a great job of it because games media was basically just the magazines that kids were already buying, I guess. So, yeah. 
Well, there's that. And then like we had things like G4 and Spike and they were trying to do like edgy video game things. Jeff Keighley was actually very involved in that. And he's now a huge name at the Game Awards and Summer Game Fest, which has uh, replaced basically E3. Uh, Summer Game Fest is like the new version of E3. Um, but but there's there's nothing like <laughs> E3, truly. And I honestly think that's a good thing. Um, in, in its later years, and especially like in the, the 2010s onward, um, the show kind of became inaccessible for the bulk of the industry, which was the independent games industry. These developers just, they weren't able to actually buy booths because they were too expensive. There was no room for them at any of these shows. Um, and it wasn't really a place where the entire industry was being celebrated. It was more of a place where the richest companies could bring the biggest blockbuster franchises and have huge booths and, you know, show off show off all their money. Um, and that's fine. That's part of the industry, definitely. But for me, it really it was kind of a hollow representation after right. a while. It was um, it yeah. was an event for the industry as it was. And I think throughout the 2000s and the 2010s, indie indie developers became more of a thing. You know, because you could distribute it more easily on consoles. PC gaming became more widespread too. So, yeah, that that totally fits. Um, we also saw a lot of big companies like basically step away from E3 in recent years too. Like Microsoft was fully out of there. EA had events uh, in Hollywood at the same time during E3, but you we had to like travel and go to a whole separate thing called EA Play. Um, just a confluence Sony. of factors. Yeah. Um, I mean, listen, we have the internet now. Uh, companies can all show off stuff on their own direct streams and launch things on their own terms. They don't need they don't need real media, I guess, or they don't need normal media because they can just like partner up with uh, an influencer to be like, hey, promote this game and they will do it. Um, well, yeah, like, it's also different. That doesn't none of this means that like there was no point to E3. I have a lot of really fond memories of these shows. I went to Oh, geez, I haven't even counted, but I probably went to like 10, wow. eight or 10 of these shows. And I truly was excited for it every year because I knew I would see something weird, something cool. Some, you know, I would talk to some developer that I'd never talked to before. And that was always exciting. And like, man, I will always remember the E3 press conference that Sony gave where it dropped the mic on, on Xbox and revealed the price of the PS4. Yeah. <laughs> and it was yeah. it was like slightly cheaper than the Xbox. And it was it was this whole deal and it was so sweet. And I was in the audience when Sony made that announcement. And I will never forget that. Because you were um, physically there. You weren't just watching yes. a live stream and trying to like follow it. You know, it's very different, I guess. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it was. It was. And like, but you could see the writing on the wall for a few years. I mean I wrote an editorial in 2018 where I talked to a bunch of developers on the ground at E3 and at, outside of it. And basically, they said that there's no point to E3. It's just like the the side hustles were where it was at, like Devolver was doing its side business and EA Play was doing its side business. All these shows around E3, that's where the juice was. And so yeah, it, like the show just kind of became obsolete. I mean, it's also started as basically literally being a trade show, right? So it was a place where Nintendo and other developers would go and be like, people from GameStop and people from other stores would be like, so how many cartridges do you want to buy? Which tells Nintendo, you know, how many to make? Like it was a whole, that was the function of a trade show back in the day. And now it's more like, no, everything's being sent out digitally. So it's like, it's about hype. How do you produce hype? And an in-person industry event probably is not... The, the best way to do this. Uh, Sherlyn, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this, but it's sort of like 
Imagine if like CES fully disappeared, right? What do, what do we even go to CES for? Because it's kind of the same thing. Um, do you have any thoughts about E3 or like, I guess, in-person events in general at this point? Yeah, I mean, you're, you, you've said basically exactly what I was going to say, which is that like, I see the parallels in things like, to me, E3 feels like the CES of gaming shows, whereas like you have other shows like PAX, East, West, whatever, you have the uh, variety of other shows. I don't know all the names of them, Jess would obviously know better, but... <laughs> Right, GDC, thank you. Dice, That's the other one. Uh, Gamescom. One. Yeah. Yeah. I remembered one, okay? PAX. Like, I feel I like that gives you. me some credit. I, I know, I'm proud Good of job. you too. Thank you, honey. Um, so, like, it, I, I see the parallel, right? E3, but it's stunning to me that E3 being the biggest one. Like, I, I, I would see MWC going away, IFA going away before I would see ECES going away. Whereas, like, in the gaming world, it feels like the flip is true, which is that the indie games showcases, the the smaller names are are the ones that have a little bit more longevity in your sphere, Jess, where it's more interesting things are happening. So there's more sustained interest there. Whereas like CES, you always get like all the big, you know, big and small, really. I think people flock to CES, but MWC is becoming more and more, you know, or less and less important. IFA is becoming less and less important over the years. Um, for me, it's more like this is happening. Same shit with like you guys said Sony and, and Microsoft are pulling out of the shows. We have, you know, Apple doing never being at CES, but we have like Samsung pulling out of uh, not using MWC anymore to launch Galaxy S flagships. We've got Sony or others phone makers no longer just using these shows, doing their own thing. So, and LG no longer makes mm -hmm. phones. So, a Apple at times would trend. use CES to like troll, like troll Google. I remember They've like done when that we were there. Yeah, I remember. Ad, yeah. And they had ads <laughs> on the buildings. Ad. Yeah, about what stays in Vegas. But that, what that's stays the on your phone. <laughs> that's the value of an in-person event. Um, I've only been to a couple of E3s, but it was a cool play way to like network with people socially, which is another function of like an industry event uh, we do that ces i'm gonna miss like having that opportunity but uh you know what i need to spend some time with these other things i liked gamescom quite a bit i have not done a pax thing uh maybe this will help us spread out our coverage more to some of these smaller events because that would be fun uh is that what you'd like to do jess oh yeah i mean i love gamescom i love gdc the PAXs are all their own brand of of weird. Sure. You know, I'm there's there's something for everyone. And Summer Game Fest is is growing into something significant. Um, so that's really fun to see. Yeah. I have to wonder too about the money that may or may not be saved or spent by yes. going or not yes. going to these events and what they could be better used for or who might be missing out on the money that may not be spent anymore. Like if CS were to ever go away, for me it's like, oh it's a lost opportunity for the companies I think that are more indie, right? And I think that's why for gaming shows, the indie games are staying because you do still need that sort of platform to catch the eyeballs and the attention of everyone else. But where's Sony going to spend the money of not going to E3 anymore or like that sort of thing, you know? Do they... So I I, I see bigger companies probably like spending their money on their own events, their own shows. Probably they, they can do a PlayStation something. But what other... Like what about the middle of the range ones. I don't, you know, do you have yeah. thoughts on that, Jess? Yeah. Like Sony dipped out of E3 years before it was canceled. Um, it was, it was pretty much done. And, and honestly, we were still like the Apple ad, we were still talking about Sony at E3, even though they weren't there. You know, I made a whole video about Sony one year and they weren't even there. And they like, in my mind, they won that year of E3 and it's like, yeah. So these companies that have the money, um, they're, they're fine just running their own, their own programs and doing their digital showcases. And honestly, even these indie studios are able to do things like this with like Annapurna Interactive, Devolver Digital, Panic, Private Division, like all the raw fury, all these like 
kind of mid-tier publishers are getting in on digital showcases wherever they can. Day of the Devs is a great showcase that just highlights indie games from across the spectrum. Or it's just a bunch of Devendras lined up in a row. I'm not really sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's all it is. Yeah. Like all that's my uh, VR avatar. Like, yeah, event. You should do that and call it Mm -hmm. Day of the Devs. And Mm -hmm. I will. It's your birthday. That's what we're going to do it now. Well, we're going to talk about the Game Awards, right? And the Game Awards is essentially Winter Games Fest, right? (laughs) Basically, like it is another Jeff Keighley event where we highlight new things in the industry, but also try to celebrate what's happening as well. Like, try to celebrate the best games of the year and stuff. So it is a weird thing, Jess, because. It's sort of trying to do two things, right? It is trying to be an award show, but it's also trying to be uh, a hype show, like another hype show for, hey, new trailers, new events and things like that. And that's not the way award shows work for for like the Oscars or, you know, the (laughs) Emmys or something. It's very weird. Isn't it weird? Um, Yeah. So I think it helps to look at the Game Awards not as an extension of like E3. Um, It's more, it's a response to like, the really shitty version of video games that we were getting on like channels like Spike (laughs) and the VGX awards, which were an embarrassment that like, I don't know if you guys remember this. I remember this. I remember all of this. Yeah. Not me. So this was a show in 2013 hosted by Jeff Keighley and Joel McHale, like that that actor that people know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People know him. And he's funny. He's fine. But during this show, he was so pissed off. He did not understand what video games were. He thought Aww. the entire thing was ridiculous. He, was, yeah. he had just met Jeff Keighley. Their dynamic was awful. There was tension in the air. And and Jeff was Would like- Would you believe just, Joe McHale is maybe kind of an asshole, you know, but also know, like Sean, the, enti- right? the entire thing felt beneath him is the, is the it, yeah. thing. He was like, why am I here? I am on yeah. community. I don't need to be here. No, yeah. truly. It felt like that. And it was like w- there were developers in the room and he was just like not giving them the time of the day. And, you know, it was it was really embarrassing. Um, and then Jeff Keighley kind of turned around and he's turned uh, the Game Awards into a show that looks like the Oscars. Right. It has the big stage. It's in L.A. It, it's all they wear tuxes and whatever. They bring um, in celebrities to, they bring to in make cele- us like, pay attention literal to literal movie stars, which Mr. I have thoughts on. T- Timothy um, Chalamet, yeah, yeah, and then the whole show itself actually this year felt less about the awards and less about honoring developers that have done amazing things in video games, and it was just a bunch of ads. It was a bunch of trailers and world premieres and in games, and then we had a bunch of like movie stars on stage, and some of them were tangentially like connected to video games, you know, but. They weren't. They weren't the people that are yeah. truly driving this industry. They're Last year, Al Pacino hit the stage, and we we're all like, "Al Pacino, everybody!" It felt like that's what be- did it, though. It, right? It that's feels like when why. when Austin Powers is like, "Hey, Burt Bacharach, everybody, lend a hand." Don't we love him? Like, right. w- Why is he here? I don't. I why love Al Pacino. Here? Why is he here? Yeah, like Jordan Peele came on stage to announce a game that actually is a movie. That he's making with Hideo Kojima. And hey, we all know, at least... That was relevant. I, he's relevant to be there. Yes. Understood. Kojima is relevant. But I have said this in my review of Death Stranding. I said it too. He just wants to be a film director at this point. Oh, my you God. Know? <laughs> I, I wish Death, like Death Stranding would have been better if it had been less of a movie and more of a game. It mm-hmm. just would have been. It would have been it, a better it game. It just would have been... Also, and like... So, uh, yeah, I'm not, Ko- I'm not Kojima, impressed by Hollywood. Kojima is interesting because he is also... 
he wants to be a director, but he's also like, he loves Hollywood people. Like he loves actors. He loves directors. And um, he brings them to his office and he captures them digitally. And it's all kind of creepy and weird because uh, then they end up starring in his games, right? Like the director of Drive, Nicholas Vending Refn, is in Death Stranding. Guillermo del Toro is in Death Stranding. In addition to the people, you know, in addition to uh, what's his race from Walking Dead. So Norman Reedus, yeah. Norman Reedus. Conan O'Brien oh, is baby. in Death Stranding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Norman anyway. Reedus is. I so let's, well, uh, Norman Reedus. And let's like, talk. There we go. Go ahead, Jess. Well, it's just like Kojima likes Hollywood mm-hmm. and Jeff Keighley likes Kojima. And, and I think at this point, it's just in my mind, it's time for the Game Awards to truly step into its own as a video game show and yes. not as a a mockery of a Hollywood show where video games are not film. I don't want video games to be film. We don't need to emulate film anymore. You know, it worked for a while, but now video games have their own identity. And I think we should just lean into that. That's all. It's uh, it's, yeah. go ahead. I do have a quick question slash comment before y'all go into the like individual things that we saw at the show. It's just like, do we think the, the, the fact that it felt like a lot of ads more than anything this year than like lauding the artist's, uh, is that a result of it now becoming so much more watched as an event? Like there's so much mm-hmm. more interest around it as an event. So therefore people are using it as an ads platform as opposed to like an awards show. It always was an ads platform, mm-hmm. right? So it, do you think the balance was off this year, Jess? Um, yeah. I mean, it was off because half of the, like most of the awards were given by Jeff Keeley just shouting into the camera, the category and then the winner. You know, and then developers themselves were only given 30 seconds on stage Ugh. if they actually got a, an acceptance speech. They were given 30 seconds and they started playing that music real quick. Ugh. And a lot of developers were cut off and they knew they didn't have time to actually say anything. You know, you could feel it. It just didn't feel like a celebration of the people actually making this industry yeah. run. I think the Baldur's Gate 3 developer was also trying to say something about a, t- a colleague who had passed away like while they were developing the game and they got the like, you know, shove it, shove on music, basically keep going. After 30 seconds, you could see the prompter that the people on stage were looking at. It just said, please wrap it up. Literally the the worst aspect of Hollywood award shows is just like never giving artists enough room to celebrate themselves. Really? Uh, I want to be clear. um, The video game awards can really go back to like the spike video game awards, but even before the VGX, uh, Jess, that was like, that started in 2003. 2003 with Mr. Jeff Keighley. And weirdly, I see I, Keighley has his hands in like Game Awards since like Cybermania in yes. 1994. So yes. this guy has been around forever, but has somehow, uh, I don't know him personally, seems like a nice guy, but he has somehow nice. like gotten to the point where he is the king of game game events, game celebration, game something. He, um, he's our Doritos king. Yeah, he's, he, he is, is our king. He is our king. And I don't know if he's uh, ready to wield this power, but he certainly, he's friends with everybody. He's friends with Kojima. So I guess it's all you really need. Let's talk about some of the games, by the way, because the Kojima thing, first of all, there was news this morning. Um, Kojima has uh, apparently partnered with A24 to make an actual like movie, a Death Stranding movie. So we don't know what that's going to be, um, but that. Yeah, shocked. Like, this is something Good he's been him, building though. towards since uh, Metal Gear Solid 1, basically. Like, really, his cinematic, like, vision has always been there. Um, but also, Mr. Hideo Kojima also has another game, um, which uh, Jordan Peele is also going to be collaborating with a bit. Um, it's uh, called OD, 
I think it was once known as Overdose. And we got a trailer, which is just actors, uh, including Hunter Schaefer from Euphoria and Udo Kier. Udo Kier, who is a great like schlock B-movie actor. So when he appears in something, I'm like, oh, that's that's interesting. It is them staring directly at the camera. Or it looks like, like direct digital models of them, right? Staring at the camera, there's like lights and stars in their eyes, and they're just repeating nursery rhymes, and they're getting increasingly like disturbed. And it's just that sort of like, oh, this is this is creepy. This is a little weird. And towards the end, you somebody starts to uh, cry and scream a little, and you see through the reflection of their eyes a door opening. And like, oh, this is Kojima's at it again. This is PT all over, basically. See? I love Kojima. Yeah. I love Jordan Peele. Like I want to be excited about this game, but I just personally am a little I'm a little over Kojima trying to do movies in games. Mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. just that brings my excitement down, but like yeah, I'm going to I'm going to check out this game whatever it is, this movie, this game, this thing that Kojima and Jordan Peele are doing. I will check it out. I mean, especially because Kojima's just, he is like collecting Hollywood people like Pokemon. He's like, I want to, will you be my friend, Jordan Peele? Will you be my friend, Guillermo del Toro? And Jordan Peele says yes. And now he can, you know, do something in a horror game with him and love Jordan Peele. I have loved all of Jordan Peele's movies, even the ones like people weren't really into. Um, So yeah, yeah, sure. This is a great, uh, great thing for him to do. Um, Thoughts on this, like related to PT, Jess? Um, I don't know if you were a PT stan or not. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, PT was just, fantastic just a demo yeah yeah pt was this is what i mean when i'm like frustrated that kojima isn't leaning more into games right like pt was really cool (laughs) and really simple and it used simple game design techniques to tell a really disturbing weird story that stuck with people still sticks with people today um yeah and and it, it looked nothing like a movie and i think there's a lesson there that's all there's a lesson there. I mean, he he needs to balance his impulses. Like I spent, I gave uh, Death Stranding a couple hours and, you know, there's just so much of it. It was like, man, I wish he could have help with writing. I wish he could have help with characterization, but also just playing that damn game infuriated me because it didn't play so well. So I don't know. I'd love to see him like try something different because what was it? Uh, Metal Gear Solid Five. Like, just like the sheer sandboxy gameplay of that thing was incredible. Like, he still has it in him, even if he couldn't make that a complete game, you know? Uh, another he's a thing, legend. Mm-hmm, yeah. He's a legend for a reason. Like, he, yeah, he is somebody, I think, maybe he's not on the, like, uh, mountain like Miyamoto is for me, but he is somebody who thinks about game design in really interesting ways, and I think we need more of those folks. Speaking of interesting game design, the No Man's Sky people um, were back with another... Very ambitious, very potentially like um, th- th- this may be biting off more than they can chew. Uh, Hello Games announced Light No Fire, which is a big multiplayer RPG sandbox set in an Earth-sized environment. It looks like, basically looks like their Skyrim. You know, rather than going to different <laughs> planets, you are traveling on dragons on like a big MMO world. Um, what was your first impressions of this, Jess? Yeah, I mean, it's basically taking the idea of No Man's Sky and applying it to one planet one literally like earth-sized planet that you can explore every aspect of and everything's going to be filled with life and secrets and yeah there are dragons and it's very fantastical but it's also about building communities with the other players in the game it's this living world they're calling it the first real world simulator um which yeah sounds sounds like some heavy marketing language uh from a studio that has 
a, a shaky history with overpromising. But I will say, uh-huh. Hello Games didn't overpromise. Sony overpromised Sony on No Man's Sky. Yeah. And Hello Games was only ever trying to catch up with a, a system that took advantage of the team. I truly they were they were a, like they had just made Joe Danger games, you know, trying to do a big space game. So it's like, yeah, they were they were not prepared for what Sony was launching them into. I fully but agree like, with that, Jess. Yeah. Sean Murray, the the creator of like the No Man's Sky idea, he's one of the founders. He's he's the face of Hello Games and he, I I believe in him because when he he says things are possible and then he proves in the game that yes, we can actually do this. No Man's Sky is a a brilliant huge game and everything that Hello Games said would be there is in that game. It, it wasn't just took, at launch. It took five right. years, but yeah, it took a while. It, and yeah. it took a while. They needed a few more resources, some more time, but like they weren't over promising in terms of like this wasn't actually possible. So I believe that Light No yeah, Fire, yeah. this new game, it will totally deliver everything they say. And now with the lessons of No Man's Sky, with the the foundation that that game has given them, the, nothing in this game that they promised sounds outlandish. It sounds very doable for them. Mm-hmm. And I, I trust Hello Games with have, something have like you, this. Have you played an MMO? Like, it sounds like a big-ass MMO. Like, basically, that seems like what the, the pitch is here. I do like that Sean Murray basically seems like he is very centered in terms of, like, what happened with No Man's Sky because he was even joking about it on Twitter. Is like... Um, he was pulling up a comment from some from a game site saying like, "Do not, do not overpromise, Sean." It's like I, I can't, I can't, I can't help it. And then, oh, we made it a size planet, Earth size game. Uh, well, we, you know, mm-hmm. we have to remember how extreme the marketing for No Man's Sky was. Like Sean Murray was on the Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He met with Elon Musk. He met with Steven Spielberg. Ugh. He was in a beef with Kanye West on Twitter. Like, yo, this game was wild sony pushed it like it would a prestige movie or you know like and it just it was it was an indie game from an indie team that sony was publishing <laughs> that's like that's it so yeah, I, I was covering the tribeca games in control yeah i was trying to uh doing the tribeca games festival and they had a big no man's sky session there too and it was like standing room only it was everybody was like rushing to see like this game where they have an entire universe that's procedurally generated sony did sony is a hype king i guess like sony's just so good at hyping those things up as a game jess how does this look to you it looks really interesting um yeah i think it's it for me it looks like somewhere between horizon zero dawn and no man's sky right like that's the kind of vibe with the the beasts and the animals Uh, they're not robots but they are like fantastical kind of things um yeah, I'm into it. I think it'll be fine. I don't know if it's my kind of game specifically, but people that like The Sims or Second Life or people that want to yeah disappear into an MMO for hours on end, this is like a place to do that. And you can do it with your friends, which is really cool. Build a little community. Yeah. Sherlyn, have you seen the trailer for this thing? No, but I mean, No Man's Sky always sounded like very interesting as a concept, but I don't know now hearing y'all talk i wonder if what i heard was the hype i feel and like the, and the no man's sell than anything else. i think you would actually really dig no man's sky because right now sherlyn is doing um was it uh needlework right now or crocheting crocheting yes. and um literally that is you want to go around and do very very simple mechanical tasks over and over again until you create something potentially beautiful that is no man's sky. Uh- Oh, yeah. you mean like when I was on Among Us and just cleaning up the spaceship instead of looking for the oh, imposter? God. Gotcha. Oh, That's God. very sweet. No, very I think you, you might actually like No Man's <laughs> Sky. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And okay. it does and also, deliver 
whatever it needs to, you know, it's not, it's not missing any features at all. Yeah. It also plays really well on the handheld gaming, like PC stuff. So yeah, you could totally check it out. Trillin. Um, I just have to say like, this thing looks beautiful. I love hello games art, art style because it's very colorful. It's very like bold and detailed too. Like it just, I want to live in this world and it's sort of like, you know, the dreams of, uh, was it elder scrolls online, right? You know, people play that seems fine. Uh, but I've never liked the way a lot of those things looked. Uh, it just feels like it doesn't look as good as Skyrim. You know, it doesn't feel as uh, as immersive to me as something like Skyrim. And this seems like um, I could get a dragon. I could hang out with my friends and just like be, if it could this be a persistent world that you hang out in for a decade, um, building on everything we know about MMOs. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you, Jess. Like, have you had like those great online gaming experiences? Because for me, I'm thinking of like the first time I was playing Fantasy Star Online on my Dreamcast. And I was like, how am I, how is any of this possible? How am I playing with other people on a 56K modem or 33.3 kilobit per second modem? What was your first like online experience like that? I mean, I guess I'm more, uh, Minecraft is a big one. And that's, this is kind of like, this new game from Hello Games is kind of like Minecrafty in that way, where you can just dive into a world with people, um, but it's much more intense. No, but I, I'm more competitive gaming when I play online. I don't do as much cooperative stuff. So Overwatch. Wow. I know. I know. This Great is teammate, Just Condit. Yeah. Well, it's true. <laughs> it's just true. <laughs> I no, did play I, I uh, the, the dual game with online. you. Yeah. What what was that game called? It won the Game Awards last year, right? Or a couple of years ago. It takes two. We oh, did. We for- it won I, the top game yeah. award, so yeah. I have problems with that game. I know. I recall. <laughs> uh, you could see our video. I think it's still on the Engadget YouTube channel. Um, let's talk about some other stuff. Uh, I want to highlight uh, Blade. There's a Blade game coming for Arcane uh, Leon, the folks behind Dishonored, the folks behind uh, Deathloop, Death and Loop. I love the Dishonored game so much. So when I saw I was like, I love whatever Arcane does. Uh, let's move off of Redfall and like the memories of that whole thing because that wasn't even that team. And I love Blade. This combination is just like, yes, this is my, uh, this is d- like, yeah, I'm going to eat this right up. What did you think, Jess? That trailer got me very excited. Uh, when I realized it was Blade, I was like, okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge like Marvel person or, you know, comic. <laughs> but you can be a huge Blade person. Right. But I, so I, great. Am, I am a Blade person. Yeah, no, I'm very into that. And honestly, like Redfall mechanically was fine like you know it, it was a vampire game that's why yeah I'm more vampires this is an yeah. arcane vampire thing a uh, different studio but yeah it's it's i think they can do it fine um we still have like a wolverine game coming from insomniac and yeah we have this blade game so it's kind of hit or miss with these licensed products i really want to see some gameplay before you know before actually feeling anything about it it's Arcane Leon. I I trust them enough to be like, you're going to do some, you're not just going to give me a cookie cutter, you know, beat them up or something here. You're going to do like Deathloop is so interesting mechanically, even if it's a little overly complex. I still really loved the experience of playing it and trying to piece together like the mysteries of that game. Um, I love Blade. I think Blade is great. Blade 1 and 2 are some of the best comic book movies ever made. We will exactly. not talk about Blade Trinity. It is funny that um, we're waiting for another Blade movie to be made, but the the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe is in such a weird state right now where we don't even know when that's going to happen. And I love Mahershala Ali, but um, you know he is he is not getting any younger, so it's going to be a weird action movie with Blade. But now we can have a perfect like perfect Blade game by Arkin Leon. Okay, I'm excited. Thoughts on Blade, Trillin? Uh, similar thoughts on the movies. 
interested, but I, yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm waiting for see, Jess to tell me if it's worth playing. Did you see Blade 2? I've seen none of the trailers. I and okay. Oh, no, I saw Blade 1. Not the, not, but not you Blade need 2, to yeah. see Blade 2 because Mr. Donnie Yen is in it as Ooh, a kick-ass vampire. Man, Donnie. Okay. He also uh, did a lot of the choreography, so that game, that movie just looks incredible because he is apparently not a nice guy on set, apparently, but, you know. Donnie Yen? I, Donnie Yen. He, yeah. He's people, not a nice guy on set? No. I'm there's a lot of, like, reports about just people working with him. And it's, like, it's like working with a child, like how stubborn he is. But anyway, uh, other games, Windblown from the Dead Cells folks. That looks cool. I like Dead Cells quite a bit. This is, like, a different... Uh, this different is sort take. of like yeah. different take, different perspective, but another sort of like um, roguelike type of game. Did you have any thoughts on this, Jess? That one caught my eye. Definitely. It looks like Saturday morning cartoony and then it gets in this like top down kind of uh, combat vibe. I'm into it. Yeah, I like Windblown looks really cool. Motion Twin knows how to make a very satisfying game. So that's cool. Oh, man. Dead Cells was so especially when Dead Cells came out, that was surprisingly addictive for you know i've played a lot of roguelikes but i think that just felt good it felt like a perfect um almost felt like a good castlevania game while also bringing in the roguelike elements i thought that like that part of it just made it so addictive also want to talk about this thing uh sega i guess is making a pretty big comeback because they announced that they are resurrecting their classic games including jet set radio crazy taxi and golden axe for new games new sega games that's cool right that's fine it's cool I mean, Sega can't just be Sonic forever, right? So they gotta they gotta do something. And even Sonic isn't doing much for him nowadays. Well, they had uh, that last Sonic game. Did you play it, Jess? No. Some pe- people were like kind of <laughs> mixed. Like some people thought it was like kind of interesting, but it wasn't fully baked. You know, it was sort of like a half-hearted attempt at next-gen Sonic. I saw it at like all the the game shows, like Summer Game Fest they mm-hmm, had mm-hmm. last year, or yeah, last year, and uh, it just did not look like a great game <laughs> and and yeah it seems like it played out that way too kind of played out that way but uh listen the golden era of sega for me i guess for a lot of people it is the genesis is maybe some arcade stuff but for me it was kind of the dreamcast so to be like leaning in on jet set radio which we got some xbox you know follow-ups but i never felt they never had like the right vibe crazy taxi also came back to xbox um I, I love those games. I love those like those concepts. So there's a lot Sega can do here because uh, it does seem like they don't really have anything else. I don't know about new ideas from Sega, but I can get excited about, um, I don't know, new new Streets of Rage, new Shinobi, something like that, right? Definitely. Yeah. I'm still there's so mad about There's a lot of nostalgia the, there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm still so mad about the Dreamcast. I'm still, I will never get over being mad about the Dreamcast because the PlayStation 2 was such a worse system. But that one ended up being uh, that that one that one everything. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else you want to talk about around um, around the game awards, Jess? Just your overall thoughts, what you'd like to see next year? Um, yeah, I mean, so I have that video. I'm doing a weekly video game news show on YouTube. So if you want like the weekly roundup of video game news, check our YouTube channel. And yeah, I kind of get into the game awards in this week's episode. Um, and I kind of close out by mentioning a few other awards shows and like events that I like to watch, like the Spawnies from Spawn on Me, GameDev.World yeah. from Rami Ismail, um, and then like the showcases from Annapurna, Devolver, Panic, uh, Day of the Devs. So yeah, I just want to shout those out definitely so people can check them out when they roll around. Just good conversations with developers that are like really innovating in video games um, and, and, and rewarding those efforts. It's really cool. Um, and next year, I hope the Game Awards takes a step back and thinks about the balance between 
making money on the show and actually providing, I think, the show that like Jeff wants. I think he loves this industry and I think he wants to celebrate it. Um, but yeah, I think we we went a little too far on the marketing side this time, a little too far on the Hollywood side and just bring it back to games. Yeah. Bring it back to games. I, I almost wonder if they can like split it up a little bit. So like the trailer reveals can be separate or interspersed better and also you know, let the no clip folks or some folks like that do some like deep dives on the winners to like spend a couple days like who won best game. Like, let's tell a quick story. Let's make a little short film about them and their story and what it was. And also, we didn't mention this, but Baldur's Gate 3 won best game. Yes. Game of the year. Game of the year. Are you Presented happy with that, Presented by Jess? Timothy Chalamet for sure. some reason. <laughs> by Willy Wonka himself. Yeah. Um. <laughs> that was that's a I love that. Baldur's Gate 3 winning game of the year. I think that's a really cool thing for our industry larian studios it's a big indie studio but it's an indie studio they made and published this game themselves and that is awesome to see yeah very into that in a year when we got tears of the kingdom in a year where i think a lot of people were betting on starfield to have a lot of like end of year play we all forgot about starfield because starfield's pretty forgettable so there is that uh talking about uh big budget game stuff by the way jess we did see the grand theft auto 6 trailer last week that leaked a little early because uh, uh it was released early because leaks of it got out online the day before everybody was pre- were preparing to like watch a trailer in the morning which is ridiculous very yep. ridiculous <laughs> that we had like appointment timing for a trailer um what do you think of this gta 6 thing jess i think it looks like the game we thought it would be right <laughs> there was nothing really surprising i mean it looks great it, it looks like the graphics looked great the the miami or the vice city setting looks great all the florida references were very funny um yeah i was able to make a real housewives of miami joke in my video when i talked about the trailer <laughs> so i was very happy about that um yeah it's it's grand theft auto and it has a it stars a female playable character uh which is very cool you know rockstar is not the studio i look to for innovation and diversity and inclusion Indeed. Um, yep. or representation in any way, but I really like that it feels like maybe they're coming around to uh, the the 21st century. It, it just I was I was looking at my responses to the Grand Theft Auto Five trailer, and I love Rockstar trailers. They do a good job of telling you like the tone of the game, like getting you ready for like whatever the vibe is. And my tweet was basically like, "Yeah, sure, would like to see a woman protagonist at some point, Rockstar." So ten years later, we yeah. have it. Finally, it just uh, takes time. Also, it's a uh, this seems like a Bonnie and Clyde type of story. So maybe the dude will be playable too. Like they did, I think these sort of like switching perspective stuff from GTA Five was really good. Where you could be in a mission and like hop to different things. Um, it looks so rich. Like it graphically, sure, it doesn't look that much different than maybe Five or even Red Dead. But there are so much detail, so many like so many characters on the screen. I just want to relive Miami Vice. I want to specifically, I want to relive the drive from the Miami Vice pilot and also Michael Mann's uh, remake of Miami Vice, which is a fantastic movie. So yeah, they'll give us all of that. (laughs) This might be it. Yeah, this this is is the moment. Well, thank you so much, Jess. Uh, Where can people find you on the internet these days? I'm mostly on Instagram and threads. uh, Jess L. Condit. Find me there. Awesome. And check out Jess's show. It's on our YouTube channel. Thanks, Jess. Moving on to some other news this week, and I think one of the topics that's been dominating at least my part of the tech industry has been a couple of apps that um, I think two weeks ago when nothing announced is bringing sort of like true blue bubble iMessage support to Android with this little app, right? And then ever since then, we've seen a bunch of things. So 
this week or actually this weekend, um, Beeper Mini, which is one of the apps uh, that was supposed to bring iMessage uh, support to Android, um, was facing some issues on his platform on Friday. And then on Saturday, I got a text message from Apple. No, I'm kidding. On Saturday, Apple message uh, sent out a statement that it blocked an iMessage exploit confirming that it was, uh, you know, basically uh, killing the vulnerability that uh, that other third parties were using that would um, uh, spoof credentials or fake or masquerade as like an iMessage user and then relay that message along. So basically, ever since then, there have been a few developments to Beeper has continued to work on the issue. And it's not like we didn't know that this was going to happen at some point, that Apple wasn't going to shut it down. We knew Apple was going to shut this down. But I, I think this was a good time to kind of talk about what's really going on here and kind of break it down, right? So in these two weeks, we're specifically talking about Beeper and Sunbird. These are two platforms slash like app developers that have come up with ways to make your green bubble message, so messages are originating from Android users, uh, look like appear in blue bubbles when they are received by iOS or iPhone or iPad users. And the way both of them were doing it, it was a very similar method, basically. They would take your message from your Android phone, send it to like a Mac somewhere, God. like an iMac or a uh -huh. MacBook or whatever somewhere, and then from there, send it over to the iPhone. So because that end part of the journey is Apple device to Apple device, it will look like it's blue. And then the conversion happens there. Because it was doing this, it was not, like you didn't need an Apple ID to send the message. It was not necessarily end-to-end -end encrypted all the time, although Beeper Mini did promise end-to-end -end encryption ultimately. Um, so what happened was Apple caught on. Once Apple understood what was going on, I think it was quite easy to quickly shut it down. It was just like, I think, more closely verifying like Apple ID stuff. Um, but Beeper has since so-called come back. And it's saying that if you sign in with an Apple ID, you can now uh, use Beeper Mini on Android again. So the question is now, if you have an Apple ID, what are you, why are you on an Android phone? I, I don't really understand. But I'm like, <laughs> is this a full proper workaround? Not quite sure. Yeah, We're I also mean, not entirely. Yeah, you can get an Apple ID just to do iTunes stuff, just to like buy. Yeah, so you don't need an Apple device for that. But this is basically our whole conversation around the Sunbird thing and the Nothing thing, which, by the way, fell apart pretty quickly after our podcast in just the way we said it would. There, I understand some people may want this, but this is just one of those things. Like Apple is Apple. Apple will crush anything that dares to like go against its rules or try to deal with any. What do you expect? What do you expect? I it mean, sucks. I gotta, I gotta applaud the app, the Beeper, and even the Sunbird people for even trying and for blatantly, openly trying. Because Beeper, by the yeah. way, is also open source, and and just putting it out there, saying, "Yeah, come at us, brah." Like you know, like here's our here's our method. We'll find a way. Yeah, Apple I think will though, come at them. They will flip one switch it, yes. and crumble their yeah. entire project. So, exactly. I don't know. I will say, though, I think that this doesn't get at the heart of the issue. I mean, mm -hmm, this is mm -hmm. dancing around the heart of the issue. And the issue here is blue bubbles versus green bubbles are a stupid, like, stigma to have. But it does happen. Apple, I don't know deliberately or not. I think part of this is deliberate, but I don't think that they've really thought about the far-reaching impact of the blue bubble stigma. But like it is fairly deliberate and it, well, it, it does have this stupid stigma, especially amongst young people who are the most susceptible to but things But as like a, like Sherlyn, as a UX 
tool, like right, as a as a thing to tell you, hey, um, I'm chatting with this person, and can I send them a nice big video? Can I send them a nice high resolution photo? If I'm having a, a lot of people understand, like if I'm having the blue chat, I can do that. We can yeah. do that stuff. If I'm chatting with the green bubble, I cannot do certain things. And that is like a very yeah. clear function thing. Like it do, it does lead to like some weird classism among Apple stuff, but I agree. It's important. I do yeah. think though, I think there are other things that Apple, if you're listening, you can focus on. I think that <laughs> uh-huh. the messaging thing is not the hill you should be dying on. There are so many other things that are great about iOS to iOS compatibility, which is for instance, airdrop is amazing. I think if I, I don't know if maybe Apple might see this as a slippery slope because if it say just turns everything to blue bubble or whatever, does that become, you know, the next thing people will target is airdrop? Who knows? I'm not going to have that conversation now. But what I want to <laughs> say is, yes, to your point, too, if you want to look at whether, you know, you can send a big video over uh, iMessage or messages, um, seeing that blue thing as a UX thing is very effective. I also want to point out that like this thing is so entrenched in our like societal cultural discourse that like it becomes to a point where like if someone has that you're dating is ghosting you or blocking you, that your <laughs> bubble turns from blue to green. You know what I mean? Like just the the, the messaging. Uh-huh. There, I just think that's pretty incredible. Is this I mean, like, uh, is this personal experience here? I'm sorry. No, I was reading. It's from uh-huh, Reddit. Uh-huh. I I uh, haven't been blocked that way yet because I have not been on I iOS that long anyway. Yeah, which don't is test nice, me, Sherlyn. Thankfully, don't test me. Uh, it's I okay. I'll block you today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean, though. Like, I I mm-hmm, do mm-hmm. appreciate that there's a lot of like cultural cash with this whole blue bubble, green bubble debate, and the fact that we've lived with it for as long as we have is really intriguing. I mean, it's um, humans suck. Like humans suck, and we will uh, form into tribes as soon as like we can. Like no matter what the difference is, like you will form into these little these little clicks, and like it's the out click messing up your fan your nice group chat. If an Android user comes in, uh, it. I hear it's a bad thing for teens. I hear people just don't it even want to like. It is an yeah, awful engage. thing for teens, for school going uh, people who this is how cliques are formed and how you know ostracization happens. But at the same time, this is the exact societal pressure that companies bank on for people to buy their products. Oh, right? sure, so it's sure, like both sure. it's capitalism versus humanitarianism. Which do you pick? I mean, to be fair, like Apple, what Apple does is like it pushes far ahead further than like the messaging standards, right? If Apple had waited for RCS to actually finalize and be a thing, right? right exactly. we, you would be doing crappy, like you couldn't do much with sending texts to people on iPhones until what? When did RCS like finally get finalized? Like recently, right? Well, uh, uh, yeah. you mean the support yeah. on Apple's part? No, I mean uh, RCS Apple- as a standard, right? It wasn't. I mean, RCS as a standard existed age like for very long, but ends when encryption really only came like this year ish. Whereas, Uh, and and mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. only really in a very like slipshod way, like Google Messages sort of adopted it for individual and then for group messages, and it's not still enabled. It's enabled by default on Android messages, but not on all RCS standards. So like Verizon's messaging app might not. I don't know. I do. I do agree. Like if Apple had put its full weight behind RCS. Similarly to how we complained about start. USB-C. Yeah, yeah. if they were like, okay, we're going to work with the consortium. We're going to work with everybody to make sure RCS is the standard. We will implement this. That'll push Android to do it faster and everybody too. Yeah, that would be better for everybody. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're making me see this in a different way. And I like that we were having this conversation, right? Which is that like Apple, I am now seeing it less as Apple is enforcing its walled garden and more that it is going ahead with ideas that it thinks is important. And exactly. yes, it can't actually be responsible for the entire industry to step up and follow along, but it can go ahead and do its own thing and on what it knows is right. So that is like the nicer way to see it. And certainly it's like fair or nicer to Apple. And I can see that point. Like Apple 
firmly, firmly believes, and it really does lead the way in a lot of things like security, privacy, and accessibility. And people have followed Apple's suit. So that's a lot of credit to them. I do think, though, that the way it is dragging its feet now yeah, sometimes, yeah. or the way it just doesn't help other platforms play nice with its own, is starting to be a little bit sure. irresponsible. I mean, okay. now that the EU is like actually like uh, basically attack taking Apple to task for not you know, being fully compliant or open to other platforms. Like that is why the RCS thing happened is because Apple was worried about potential, you know, charge by the backlash. EU. And yeah, exactly. And those RCS chats are still going to have the green bubbles, right? They're not fully going blue bubble, but maybe after this conversation, maybe, I don't know, maybe Apple will start to enable. Maybe that. we yeah. have teal bubbles. <laughs> This green meets blue. Basically, you can never like color differentiate anything because humans will just be the worst. That's basically it. Well, we have some other Apple stuff to talk about. Did you want to talk about uh, iOS 15.2, Sherlyn? Like, I know you tested out the journal app and things. Hell yeah. Um, so this week, too, in Apple land, iOS 17.2 dropped and brings with it a few important updates, starting with the new journal app that I've been really keen to test out. Uh, it's one of the things that was announced at WWDC this year that allows you to kind of... Um, answer a few short questions and come up with this sort of journal entry and Apple will also, you know, take a, you know, borrow a picture that you take in that day or whatever, and then create this pretty looking entry for you. And then over time, you can look back at your memories that day. I mean, if you're a person who like enjoys the memories that the Apple Photos apps uh, app does for you, you might enjoy this as well. Um, and then uh, it also brings about the iOS 17.2 also brings about the uh, ability to record spatial video on iPhone 15 Pros. Uh, I know you have some thoughts on that, Dev. We'll start to talk about it in a bit. But like also um, this week, uh, watchOS 10, the latest update, brings um, the ability to ask Siri for your health data um, or to log your health data. So like you can do things like, hey, you know, how many steps have I taken today? Or, um, hey, add a number of cups of water to my overall log or something. So it's a, it's something that I was really excited for when I reviewed the watchOS. Well, I say I reviewed the watchOS <laughs> and I forget that I wrote the review and I never published it because it was taking so long for me to do that. But when I reviewed uh, watchOS 10, this was one of the things where I was like, this is one step further in that whole hands-free interaction with your watch. Uh, that I think is very important. So just to like spell it out for some of you uh, who may not be familiar, you can ask how far along you are on your move rings. You can ask for your step count or how far you've walked this week. What's your heart rate? You can be like, Siri, what's my heart rate? Siri, what's my blood oxygen? Siri, how much did I slip, sleep last night? Or Siri, I took my medication. Siri, log that I took my multivitamin. Siri, I weigh this much. My period started today. I, I have whatever symptom today. My blood sugar is this. So like it can do all these things and is all on device. So it's not being transmitted anywhere is a bit more secure, which, by the way, my phone's going crazy because I've said that yeah, a lot of times, so I, I apologize. Did you, uh, have you played with the journal app, by the way? Like, do you have thoughts on, like, is this actually Not yet, thing? unfortunately. No, I, I have yet. I was on the iOS 17 beta, but that didn't have the journal app yep, yet either, yep, yep. so that took me a while. Have you? Uh, I mean, I opened it up, and it was just like, hey, uh, start writing. Basically, like, this little app is, like, giving you some prompts, like, for you to, like, I know like journaling is like a good mindfulness technique and Apple has been leading on this for a while. So, you know, yeah, putting your thoughts down, putting your trying to work out what happens during the day. That could be cool. I don't know if I'm going to use it much, though. I'm more I'm more interested in the in the watchOS um, mood logging thing that they, that rolled out earlier this year already. And it I've used that a little bit. I just generally dismiss it, though. I think it's it's a lot of work for people who 
might not need it. If you need it and you're fully aware of your mental needs, uh, this is something that's helpful, but there not a lot of people, um, I think, would engage with it on a daily basis. Um, but I know you had thoughts on the spatial video stuff, Dev. Yeah, it was cool to see Apple just bring this feature here. I feel like it would have taken, um, I, I was estimating it would take like a year or so. Like, I feel like Apple would have waited until the Vision Pro is actually out there and people would have a right. way to view this content. But no, now you can produce these spatial videos, um, which is, I believe, they'll just be like 100, it's kind of what you're viewing, but sort of like 180 degree videos with 3D depth. Um, the downside is that they're only 1080p and the only way you'll be able to view them in full quality really is uh, is through a Vision Pro. Um, yeah, I'm again, we were just talking about Apple working with other platforms. I You're never going to be able to watch this on like a MetaQuest, you know, MetaQuest, even yeah. though it has the same hardware, like any other VR headset could could just watch these things with depth. Um, maybe, maybe in a perfect world where everybody wants to build a metaverse together, that could happen. But no, for now, I do yeah. think, I wonder what this makes you think about like the timing for Vision Pro's release, right? We're expecting the headsets next year, early next year. Um, does this mean that, you know, Apple could be ramping up the ability for people to create content that they want to view on that ahead of its potential, you know, release? I think, um, I think people are just going to be playing with it so far. Like, yeah, some of the developers who are going to be getting it, not everyone's going to be getting the Vision Pro. It's very expensive. There are going to be limited units to get. Um, these things are only 1080p, by the way. So I also feel like it's not a great way to, like, future-proof, uh, you know, recording memories and stuff. You may actually want to, like, do both. Like, when I record something, I I'm typically doing 4K 30fps or 4K 60fps, if I'm feeling saucy, um, to capture, like, kid stuff because I know that content is going to look great for a long, long time. Like that is the most amount of pixels, the most amount of quality I could put in there. Um, in 20, I mean, yeah. I I just bet that it would take up so much space. It does. So it it will take up a lot of space. Really quick. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. in 2023, it feels really weird to be taking 1080p video of anything. So it's going to be a cool thing to do for like the depth effect, but it won't look anywhere near as good as uh, the sort of like 3D video simulations you saw on the Vision Pro like trailers and all the marketing around that so it's not going to look great is the thing so i'll probably take some just to like do it but yeah i'm still taking as much 4k as i can fit into my phone yeah do you have any thoughts Sherlyn? are you going to experiment with this because who knows maybe within a year or two we will have vision pro headsets that we can actually you know be testing out i've never i'm sorry but 360 degree 180 degree immersive videos with some 3d effect have been around for so long we've covered so many of them i've never found them that much more even back when the days of gear vr or you know all of those like wannabe vr headsets that were glorified you know the immersive video viewers right it was just mm -hmm. no i don't well this it, is you know? this is very different as we talked about during the vision pro launch like this is like what you're looking at so it's not like 360 you're not doing you're not doing the whole like the weird cameras that had the like yeah curved lenses everywhere you're doing one thing it's sort of like, can you capture a memory, right? Can you capture what your eyes are seeing at this moment? And what I saw in the Vision Pro was really cool. But I also have no idea what cameras they use to capture some of that footage. So I did see, like, the perspective of a kid blowing out their birthday candles, you know, from a kitchen table. And it looked really good. But like I said, I think the yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the piece that's missing for me is that I haven't, I have yet to experience the Vision Pro. I think once I do, maybe I'll be a bit more like buy into it. But right now, no, it's hard definitely. for me. 
Um, yeah. Hopefully more testing will be out there because Apple's also yeah. demoing it for developers now. In fact, uh, yeah, maybe you should be just poking Apple to be like, hey, 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 can I get a shot? Oh, believe me, I at do. This point. <laughs> also in Apple news, um, there's a new iOS 17.3 developer beta out there that adds a new stolen device protection feature that should make life harder for iPhone thieves. Um, reading from Will Shanklin's report at Engadget. And um, it basically seems like Apple's following up on a report from the Wall Street Journal. I believe Joanna Stern wrote something about like how how Apple's features also make it really easy for a thief to sort of like just steal your phone. So if somebody is um, like next to you on the subway and they want to like, they want, they're like looking at your screen, it's not very hard. Like it's very easy to just look over at your screen and see you type in your passcode. So then they have your passcode. Then they steal your phone. And what they do is they yep. immediately unlock everything, unlock everything, turn off the Find My app, you know, di- connect, disconnect the phone to all of your stuff. And um, that, you know, that's an easy way. That's what a thief will have to do. Uh, now, with the theft protection feature turned on, um, the phone will ask you for a face ID or touch ID scan. Uh, if you're away from home or work or basically a familiar location, so it knows if like you're someplace new, uh, if you just like tap in, you're trying to change things, it's going to ask for an additional scan. There's also going to be a one hour delay before changing the Apple ID password on the device. And uh, yeah, basically more scanning, more scanning and more like more care before you do any such changes around your your system. So I think this is a really cool feature. I don't know if you thought about this, Sherlyn, because you're in a city. You see, you've probably seen phones snatched and thieves run away at this point. Have you? Because I have seen that happen. No. <laughs> um, what maybe happens? I'm just not paying attention. Yeah, yeah. I bet it happens. Uh, I just try to keep my eyes to myself. I don't know. It's, uh, it's uh, something that's ingrained in me to not look around a not lot. Not look around. Oh, yeah. Um, real, real great situational awareness there, sure. Yeah. I mean, women are taught a very different thing to do in to when you're I don't know around, to be but, to be situationally uh, aware, Sherlyn. Um, but yes, yeah, I have situationally seen situationally aware, but not make eye contact. Yes. Um. Anyway, what I did want to say though is that I have seen like someone like uh, some companies like Motorola and some other Android uh, based companies have this software feature that scrambles your pin entry page. So that when, let's say you're doing a passcode, right? And the numpad is the standard one to nine or, you know, the zero is at the bottom. Um, Some software can scramble it so that the one's not at the top left. The one can be sometimes in the middle. And you'd have to look at your screen to enter it. (laughs) That sounds like a nightmare. I hate that. (laughs) Oh, no, I've used it and it's pretty good because, like, I don't do my pin entry, like, just by a reflex. And also, if someone's looking over your shoulder but from a distance... When they see the shapes of where you're hitting on your screen, they can't guess where you're hitting from like that far away. I think that that's like a wise method, but if it's difficult for you because you know you, you rely on maybe muscle memory to enter your, it pin, just I'm sounds sure annoying. Like it's not it, ideal. It sounds annoying, but yeah, the thing is, biometrics do so much now. Like the you're only doing. I the love biometrics for in, sure. In like a, a stretch. Right. Sometimes you don't have mm-hmm. biometrics. Sometimes like, you can't do it. Uh, or sometimes you reboot your phone, you right. have to tap in your pin, you know. So yeah, there right. are there are those situations. Anyway, I think the anti-theft stuff is cool. I'm looking forward to turning that on because it is one of those things I think about. Like when I was in New York, like I would often have to like basically just tell tourists like, hey, uh, your phone is in your back pocket. You were standing right by the door. And I see a guy, I see a guy literally doing like a cartoon thief finger gesture just like getting ready to do that jump um and on multiple occasions i've had to tell people like hey watch out for your phone please and don't don't be so close to the door because that is where people snatch and grab basically and run out of the train door um so anyway 
It's a cool feature. I think it'll be fun to see. Um, in other Apple news, there's a report uh, from Bloomberg and others uh, saying that Apple is about to be hit by an EU antitrust order regarding its fight with Spotify, uh, its fight with Spotify. And this is specifically around Apple blocking music services from taking you away from the App Store to do subscriptions. And this is a whole nother thing of Apple's walled garden, right? Like if you're subscribing through um, the App Store, Apple's taking a cut of that subscription. And, you know, a lot of companies would prefer they don't do that. They would prefer to get all the money you're sending them. So Spotify and others, I believe, have tried to push you out. Um, I know Amazon has done this with Kindle books, too. Like you can only buy it through the web browser. So I don't there was no final decision here. But it does seem like this is a thing. According to the Bloomberg report, uh, a decision is slated for early next year. Apple could face a fine of as much as 10% of its annual sales. Uh, that's a lot of money. From that, this specific? I don't know. I don't know from where or if it's overall annual sales. But basically, this is Apple like forcing people to use its subscription offering through the App Store. And I guess with the push to maybe an uh, enable more payment options too, maybe like this is a thing Apple will just have to stop doing again because the EU is pushing them to do it, not through its own. Benevolence. Hooray to the EU. No. Hooray to the EU, I guess. Well, they are, they're certainly changing a lot of things right there. And uh, similarly, we also saw news this week that Google lost its antitrust trial against Epic Games. Um, basically, a judge ordered that um, uh, found Google to be in violation of U.S. antitrust laws when it comes to how it runs the Play Store. Uh, the jury agreed that Google held an illegal monopoly on app distribution and in-app billing services for Android devices, and uh, it found the company's distribution agreements with other game companies uh, to be anti-competitive. So this is basically Google paying people to put their games on the Play Store rather than just let you download it online. And this was basically the same fight Epic was having with Apple, and that I believe that decision went uh, was not in Epic's favor. Um, so... Epic just feels a little more vindicated here. Uh, Tim Sweeney, who I believe is a billionaire and not an underdog, uh, but also said, victory over Google. After four weeks of detailed court testimony, the California jury found against the Google Play monopoly on all counts. The court's work on remedies will start in January. Thanks for everyone's support and faith. Free Fortnite. Free Fortnite. One of the biggest games in the world, which is doing just fine, which is printing money. Epic may have a point in terms of like how Google controls the Play Store. I also don't, I don't, I feel like for some platforms, like for mobile, there also have to be more restrictions is the thing too. Like the Play Store is more open than than the Apple Store. Uh, do you have thoughts on this, Roland, as the mobile person? Yeah, well, I'm the mobile person, but the apps marketplace is just kind of all over the place, right? Like both the Play Store and the iOS stores are pretty bad if you think about it. Like it might look on the surface if you look at the top 10 lists that the quality is better over on the Apple side of things. But if you dig deeper in, there's still a lot of random rubbish, right? On on iOS, on the uh, App Store. There's a lot more is... on Play Store. It's so bad on the yeah, Play Store. Sure, yeah. sure. It's easier to get on the Play Store with, with you know a low quality thing, and it probably is easier to you know sneak malware in. Um, and Apple's doing, I'm sorry, Google's doing a better job of that. I think it's it's been working on like its security requirements and practices on that front. But I think Android is kind of getting out of its like stink and trying really hard to crawl out of that like hole that it's dug itself into <laughs> with being so open, but then therefore like trash. You know, um, it's it's. 
it's taking some time, I think, and and Google will have to really put in the work. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Google's lawyer is like, yeah, we're gonna fight this because uh, hello, talk about a closed garden. Like, look at Apple. Look at everything Apple's doing. So, it's interesting. It's interesting that the jury went this way. Uh, maybe people, maybe they just didn't like Google as much. I don't know. We're gonna blow through some other news real quick. Uh, Carissa Bell wrote up a new feature coming to the Ray Ban Meta smart glasses. They're gonna be getting uh, AI powered visual search features. Uh, that includes like the ability to just like ask the meta assistant like, hey, what am I looking at here? Or uh, give me some options to uh, to match this outfit I'm trying to make. It's apparently using Bing Chat or Microsoft's like AI powered Bing to do some of this work. So that's cool. Does this make these things seem more useful to you, Sherwin? Sure, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Are you? Did you get a pair of the new ones? Yep, I do. I have them. Yeah. Um, I don't use them a lot though. I wanna I wanna do more testing. Uh, I did get the earlier ones. It was like they were fine for audio stuff, but Again, they didn't have polarized lenses for sunglasses, and now they finally do, and yeah, that seems more tempting to me. Uh, We also saw news about a widespread Tesla recall. Tesla has basically recalled all of its cars in the U.S. to fix its autopilot safety flaws. Uh, Specifically, I believe this is around, um, regulators found the system didn't do enough to prevent misuse. Uh, This is going to be an over-the-air update for Tesla, so you don't have to bring into the Tesla stores and stuff. Um, the nice thing about a Tesla and a lot of like modern electric cars is that you can do over the air updates. Um, but yeah, not a good sign. Certainly a sign that, uh, you know, Tesla has not been taking, um, I don't think they've really focused on safety so much with the autopilot stuff. And that has led to crashes with customers and some really sad scenarios. So yeah, hopefully some of this stuff is going to happen. Uh, but don't worry folks, Tesla's Optimus robot can also now handle an egg without breaking it. So Feel better. Autopilot is not quite working, but this robot, which will surely kill us all, um, the can eggs now, will be safe. The eggs will be safe, but they can still crush our skulls. Also, there's a bit of like AI news happening around the media. Um, we saw a story about Axel Springer, the publisher uh, behind Politico and Business Insider, I believe, has signed a multi-year deal with OpenAI uh, to license its content to OpenAI, basically. So Axel Springer will be paid for OpenAI scanning its stuff, which I, I, I'm not a huge fan of Axel Springer as a company, but hey, media organizations should be paid because these freaking uh, generative AI machines are just stealing content and just repackaging it. Yeah, so that's what's happening. Um, and also, like this will be, this will could also be a deal so that uh, Axel Springer could use some OpenAI tools within their own platform. So I don't know, hopefully not just for writing news, but what do you think about this, Roland? Uh, Business Insider is certainly one of the places that would definitely use a lot of AI in its writing, you know I think I mean? they're already so doing it, yeah. They probably already mm-hmm. are. Like I know too much about, you know, their internal workings of Business Insider to have a lot of good feelings about this story. I also think, yes, it's high time that, you know, media organizations get paid for, you know, generative AI scraping their content. But at the same time, it's like, what was OpenAI not scanning these sources before? I don't know. They were, they were absolutely, they were, I think they're doing this because a lot of now you're just paying. Yeah. Now you're just paying. And I think they're probably doing this because a lot of these big companies are ready to sue. They have a lot of lawyers and they love to use them. So yeah. Yeah. In that case, this, this move makes sense. Cause I was like, wait, you're telling me they weren't before and they're not paying for the ability to No, they're paying in like reparations almost basically reparations. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I guess, interesting. Um, but yeah, the the part that is definitely giving me pause is the part where like, oh, now you can use, in return, you can get to use some open AI um, features within your company. And we don't know I what like those will be. Yeah, they're, they're going to be testing yeah, it. Exactly. I mean, listen, we are, 
I think all of media is thinking about how to do AI stuff. Uh, something I found interesting, like yesterday in our Engadget Slack channel, like we had two staff members ask people for just like product advice, you know, like, which, uh, is this microphone good? You know, is this, uh, is this thing good? And I think that, that it just reminds me of like, oh, that taps into all of the knowledge that some of us have, right? We have knowledge about specific products and you can give suggestions. Uh, yeah, we will, uh, I don't know, let's build an Engadget AI bot that can bring in all of our suggestions and just help people. Uh, but that could be a thing. That could be a reality in a year or so. So who knows? Uh, but maybe we won't do, we certainly won't do what Sports Illustrated did. Futurism found that they had published AI written articles along with uh, fake names for writers, like basically fake writers, fake pictures. Uh, when future- So what Gizmodo did? Basically, this seems, it seems even worse because it was, um, it's Sports Illustrated. And you kind of expect them to do, I don't know, to do better. Like it's a, it's a brand that's been around forever. Uh, according to Futurism, the AI author's writing often sounds like it was written by an alien. In one article, it warned that volleyball can be a little tricky to get into, especially without an actual ball to practice with. This is this is just a sad state of affairs. So anyway, uh, because of that, uh, Los, uh, Sports Illustrated's parents' company fired the magazine CEO and I believe a bunch of top executives are also were also fired this week. So wow, immediate impact actual, against that. Yeah, yeah, actual repercussions. Mm-hmm. Holy crap! And real quick, we should probably talk about uh, Netflix's first ever engagement report. They released data on uh, on viewing habits of the first six months of this year, which revealed that The Night Agent was the most popular show on Netflix. The Night Agent, really? Okay. Did you see this, Sherlyn? Do you have any thoughts? No, what this is what, uh, the night agent so familiar. Who did it star? Was it the one know. with um, some, Michael some, Fassbender? No, no, that's the killer. Um, no, the night agent was just like some like vaguely good-looking guy. It was the show that was like twenty-four, uh, but one. not yeah, uh, a generic white guy. That that's the star of the night agent, Sherlyn. But it was like twenty-four. It's very much twenty-four, but dumber because it's by some of the people who used to do twenty-four. I watched a couple episodes. It's fine. It's perfectly fine. I'm surprised it's the most popular show on the site. Okay. I feel like it's a it's a little unfair because every show that's like the top 10 of every streaming service I've ever seen is almost always the show that they put front and center. It is. Like, and that was front and center the, for a while. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like, oh, um, last year it was to all the boys I loved because why? We put it up there for like 24 hours straight. And of course, people like, you know, are too lazy to discover a little too hard. Like if... It, yeah, I, I I don't really care a lot about what Netflix reports as its own, you know. I mean, like, we have never had so, Netflix. It has all the control there. We have never had Netflix data before, so this is just interesting on another level. Like, the second most popular thing is Ginny and Georgia Season 2, which is a show nobody really talks about. Third is The Glory Season 1. It's a Korean show. And Wednesday Season 1. Oh, The Glory is great. The Glory. The glory. People really love The Glory. Okay. Wednesday yeah. Season 1 is after that, and then Queen Charlotte. So, you know, the stuff you expect um just interesting uh i also think it's funny uh netflix just like dropped an excel spreadsheet like they they wrote a short blog post it's like here's our numbers open this spreadsheet a CSV. here's a csv uh, i hope you like uh, sorting through tables uh they just really like the least amount of effort to put this all together i found that kind of funny let's move on to what we're working on trillin you have anything to shout out i'm still drowning in end of year stories and i will be until the end of time mm-hmm, really so mm-hmm. And then we're prepping CS, so that's great. And then, you know, trying to bring our reviews program 
together um, and crochet at this and crochet. Uh, yeah, maybe yeah, that'll be a post CS endeavor. Uh, I mean, things are just stacking up because we're preparing for CS. We're preparing for the end of the year, so we have to do some like look back stuff. Um, but also, right after CES is uh, is a Sundance Film Festival in a couple of weeks, and Trillin and I will watch a couple of things for that. So anyway, we're all busy. Um, I'm working on still working on review for the Aces uh, ZenBook 14 OLED, the new one to use Intel's Core Ultra chips. Oh, by the way, those things launched today, so that that was a big event Intel just had. Um, I will get my thoughts in on that next week and working on end of year stuff as well. So many CES uh, like things we have to be thinking about. So. That's going to be fun. It's going to be an exciting show. Do you have any pop culture picks for us this week, Trillin? So uh, I was like, do I have any? And then I realized this, there's this one thing that I've been going back to a lot recently. And that's the podcast called uh, On by Jay Shetty. It's uh, I don't know if you know of Jay Shetty, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dev. Yeah, so Jay Shetty is like an author, a motivational speaker, and... Um, formerly a monk uh and he basically has a a series of like self-help motivational stuff that i personally resonate with i think that um you 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 don't have to believe in where his teachings slash philosophies are coming from which is a lot of like i believe hindu teachings um but i think the way that jay shetty is relating them to our modern lives has been actually quite enlightening for me. It's very insightful. I started off by first checking out, I think, uh, was it the podcast or was it one of his books? And then I went and started reading one of his books. So I think that there's a lot we can learn from like, you know, what he's been able to. I think Jay used to also, I don't know if he was a freelancer or a contributor or a full-time staff member of Huffington Post. Um, so I was like, oh, it seems like he could have been a former co-worker at some point, but uh <laughs> don't think so. Anyway, You're really, like, uh, I, having I some wishful like, thinking here, Shalit. <laughs> yes. I know. Uh you know, I, I found that podcast to be pretty helpful. Um, let me just make sure I have the correct name. It's called On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Uh I listen to it on, you know, my all I think it's on all podcast platforms. Is he one of those people trying to be like a life guru type of person? Basically. He's not like Deepak Chopra, if that's what you're saying. But it seems um, like he is. It does seem like that's he's he's Deepak <laughs> Chopra for the web for t- uh, 2.0 or 3.0. I don't know. Sure. Um I he he I think the uh description for him, mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. a mul- one of those multi-hyphenate title mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm. right? So like podcaster, author, and life coach, really. So sort of a Deepak Chopra type, like a guru. Like yeah. a guru, like a guru type. Okay. Interesting. Well, that's fascinating, Sherlyn. Uh, I want to shout out uh, The Boy and the Heron, Hayao Miyazaki's latest film and potentially his last because he is getting on in years and his movies take him forever to make. It's just so it's just so sad. Like this is a, a tremendous movie, though. It is sort of um, this is one of his more fantastical ones. It's funny because The Wind Rises, his last movie, was like his most realistic one. There wasn't any weird there wasn't any like fantasy stuff. It was grounded. It was sort of a reflection about his own um experiences uh growing up in like world war ii era japan and also the guilt he feels uh that his family you know basically profited off of making planes during the war this movie kind of deals into that but also is dealing with his feelings about his mother um where his mother was often sick when he was young and that was like a constant stress in his life and also it's a movie about legacy and all sorts of different things. So it is really fascinating to see, like, I think a master artist produce something like this towards the end, like as he is thinking about his own, like his own life and what he is leaving behind. Um, it's a beautiful film. 
I think everybody should try and see it in theaters. I'm going to try to see it in IMAX. Uh, I have not seen the dub. The sub is very good. The dub has some really interesting actors, including Mr. Robert Pattinson. Going full ah, weird. Yes. Going full weird. Going full weird. Like, clearly he hung out with Willem Dafoe a little too much during The Lighthouse. He's been waiting to unleash his he full is, actor. He weird, is though. the voice of He's the heron. And he is full on, like, just cackly weird witch voice. And it's kind of fun. So I want to see it just to see what that cast kind of brings to it. Also, Mark Hamill's in the dub. Like, he's been in a bunch of Ghibli dubs. Um it's a great movie. It's a fantastic movie. So, yeah. I also want to point out a show I'm watching on Hulu, which I think you'll like, Sholin. Uh, Do we talk about A Murder at the End of the World? I'm de- I've am i been watching it's it, so but good. yeah, okay. I, have, I don't okay. know if we've mentioned it. I wish yet, I had yes. more time because it's also very tech-centric, yeah. but also it's a very good show uh, from the folks yeah. behind the OA. And I have strong feelings about how bad that show ended up being. But uh, the, the OA was not great. Yeah. Uh, it has it has its fans. Britt Marlin, I believe, um, like she tends to do like really interesting sci-fi stories on a low budget. And this one is sort of like Mr. Robot meets a girl with a dragon tattoo. And I kind of yeah, I was gonna it. say it gives me very girl. With it's dragon very girl with a dragon yeah. because it's about a girl. Yeah, yeah. Who's a detective and Solving she has tattoos. So, yeah, and she has like short hair. She has short hair. Uh, it's yeah, it's yeah. very much that. Um, including the, she, the actor, played like a young, um, I think young Diana on The Crown at some point, too. So it's weird to see her in this like situation. It's a really cool murder mystery. Also stars Clive Owen as like a dastardly billionaire tech executive who built a compound uh, in the middle of nowhere, like, I don't know, so somewhere in the Scandinavian country where it's all snow. Um, but it's a compound. People are invited to murders start happening. I think it's really it's supposed well done. to be a hotel too, right? That compound. Is it? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's kind of a yes, hotel. Yeah. 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 It's supposed to be anyway. Yeah. It's really good. It's very cool. I think it's a cool very show. Cool. Uh, good mysteries. Good the tech twists. concept they introduce in mm-hmm. there too. Sorry to interrupt. No, but like no, the tech concept of those those robots. You do you remember that scene of the like multiple robots and br- building bridges and whatnot? That that was really cool to see too. It's not like as incisive as I think Mr. Robot was when it comes to tech, but it does yeah, some sure. cool stuff. It's some cool ideas and i think it's a really fun watch so if you're listening to this podcast you will probably like a murder at the end of the world it's on hulu right now well that's it for the episode this week everyone thank you as always for listening our theme music is by game composer dale north our outro music is by our very own terence o'brien this podcast is produced by ben elman you can find Devendra online at... At Devendra on Mastodon, Blue Sky, also at the Filmcast at thefilmcast.com. We've got a lot of end-of-year stuff happening. I have so many, like, movie screeners to blow through because of critic stuff. So, anyway, so many movies. If you want to hear me talk about all the new movies, go go listen. If you want to send me your favorite things that happened this year or any great Hideo Kojima game recommendations or Room Escape game uh, recommendations, I am on threads at Instagram. That's C-H-E-R-L-Y-N-N-S-T. T-A-G-R-A-M. Email us your thoughts at podcastengadget.com. Leave us a review, please, on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts. Oh, my baby. Norman Reedus is. I miss this Norman Reedus.